I always look forward to coming here, and it's been a lot of years, and I've seen a, a good number of you over that time, and uh, so I, I, I'm always appreciative. I didn't get to see this trip, uh, Dale and Beth McCoy, um, because uh, Beth's had, and I know you all know the McCoys, um, but Beth has had a lot of problems with the back surgery that didn't go well, and she's recently had a, a one that I think to fix things that weren't done properly maybe the first time or but anyway I think she's she's on the mend I think she, it, it the outlook's much more positive Dale had had uh I think uh, melanoma maybe taken off I think he's fine I think they feel like they got all that so um ho hoping hoping when I come back next year Dale and Beth uh I'll get to see them um but uh, that's that's some old friends of mine that I always look forward to seeing here but anyway Glad you're here tonight, and uh, we're going we're to finish it up tonight, Ephesians. So if you uh, have that outline that was out front when you came in, I'm going to pull mine. Um, I'm just going to show you where we are on the outline. You can kind of follow along. So if, if you uh, think of it as page one, flip that one. Page two, flip that one. And so the bottom then of that page on the back back of that page at the bottom you see exhortation walk this way my if, if i if i i wasn't really intending that to be the name of a popular song by a band named aerosmith but the cert, but if i yeah, sometimes i'll do that and if people don't get it it's fine like my students would get that one for sure but walk this way is uh is what i'd call this because there are five times beginning here at chapter 4 verse 1 through to chapter 6 about verse 10 there are five times where Paul says therefore uh, I urge you or uh, I command you to walk in a certain way so it's the therefore and the walk and he puts those two words together therefore walk in a certain way uh, and he's going to explain it but that sort of helps you follow the, the, the second part of Ephesians, and it's the exhortation section. So if you, if you think about the big picture here, and I did this, I think, on Sunday morning, but I always like you to think, what's, what, how is this letter laid out, and where are we in the letter? So the letter starts with an opening, verses 1 and 2. That's Paul, an apostle of, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he says, to the, saints, uh, to the saints who are at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. That's the opening. And then you have that, that blessed, or that it, it's a blessing to God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. And then he talks about election. That's his first one, that, that, that he chose us. He talks about redemption. And he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit, which seals us and is the down payment of more to come. Then that gets you to about chapter 1, uh, verse 14. Then beginning at 1, 15 through 23, the end of chapter 1. That's what we did the sermon on Sunday morning. That was the sermon uh, in the worship service. So that's where he prays for them, that God would open their minds and, and that he would illuminate the eyes of their hearts. And um, so we did that. So that's all introductory. You've got the opening and then the blessing to God and a prayer on behalf of his audience. 
Then at chapter 2, verse 1, he starts with the, the, the actual body of the letter begins. And chapters 2 and 3 are theological reflection. They're weighty theology. Now that's what we did if you were here on Sunday night. So I started in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's where he says, your predicament was you were dead. You were children of wrath. You were children of disobedience. Everybody. That's true of everybody. That's, that's where we start as human beings in a fallen world. But then he talks about God's grace. By God's grace, you were saved. And he says he has made you alive. And then the consequences of that is you are to do good works. You were created uh, to do good. You were his workmanship made for good works. That was 2, 1 through 10. That's, that's, that's that weighty theology about what was our predicament, what God did for us in Christ, and that we should do good works. Then 2, 11 through 22, continuing on in chapter 2, there's a, he talks about another human predicament. And it's one that primarily Gentiles uh, experience. And that is Gentiles, and that would have been most of his audience, and it would be everybody here tonight, we were also in a predicament that Israelites weren't in. If you were an Israelite, you had Abraham as your father, uh, you had Moses, you had the prophets, you had the, the promise to David, you had the promises, you had the prophets, you had the Old Testament, you had all of this access to God with the possibility that you could be part of God's people. Gentiles didn't have any of that. And that's the, that's the predicament Gentiles were in. And he talks about that in 2, 11 through 22. That you were separated from the nation of Israel. You were alienated and estranged from the covenants of promise. And you were without hope and without God in the world. So now he's back to talking about this human predicament that all Gentiles were in. But then God's grace steps in. And by God's grace... He tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and he removed the hostility so that Gentiles could share in the promises to Israel. We could share in the prophets. We could share in God's revelation. And so that there could be one people of God. In a sense, God made the two into one people of God um, based on faith in Jesus. So now the people of God is comprised of both Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus. Paul can say, he doesn't say it here, but he says it in Galatians, that a Gentile who believes in Jesus and follows him as Lord is more of an Israelite than a biological son of Abraham, somebody who could trace their heritage back to the 12 tribes if they reject Jesus as Messiah. So he's redefining who is a true Israelite. And, and it is defined by faith in Jesus. And so he has taken the two, Jew and Gentile, and he has now made one people of God. He's made the two into one. So that was God's work of grace. He did that through Jesus' death on the cross. The consequences of that is now the people of God are one people, multicultural. Now things like male-female, slave nor free, economic status, Jew or Gentile, these things don't matter anymore. God didn't take away. We're still Gentiles. 
we're still male or female. We might have different economic standing, but those things don't matter anymore with respect to God and our relationship to Him. So that's chapter 2. That's, that's the first part. That's that weighty, I mean, I'm, the things I'm summarizing here are really heavy theology. And then we get to chapter 3, he's going to pray again for them. But before he gets to the prayer, he talks about his call to be apostle to the Gentiles, how unworthy he was for that call, and then he prays for them. And he prays that they might be strengthened uh, in, in, in their inner person, that they might know the depth of God's love for them, and that they might be filled to the fullness, with all the fullness uh, of God. Now that's the, the heavy theology part. Now that brings us to, back to this outline, the exhortation section. We're still in the body. This is still part of the body of the letter. But now, based on all that theology, he's going to say, this is how I want you to walk. And walk is a metaphor for how you live. And some translations will actually translate what is the verb to walk as live. Because that's what it's actually pointing to. So now let's open up our Bibles. That's enough of a... Uh, that's enough of, enough of a buildup. And we're still in the body of the letter, and we're picking up at chapter 4, verse 1, with the exhortation section, the exhorting them to walk in a certain way. So now I want to point out to you, we're just going to give a run through 4, 5, uh, and really we'll end at, um, at 5. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to show you where he says, therefore walk. And that's how I've outline this section so if you start at 4 1 he says therefore I a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received now you know this was written in Greek and I know that we have a variety of different English translations that you're looking at and they're not all going to read exactly the same way but I am curious, as you look at chapter 4, do you see a therefore either right at the beginning or in the first few words? So some of you, your translation actually has that word therefore. Do you have a, a, a verb that says, or yeah, I, I, therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. How many of you have a word for walk there in chapter 4, verse 1? Let me see your hand. Okay, so I want if, if yours doesn't say walk, I want you to see that some translations do actually say walk. Now, that's a more literal translation of it, but it means he's using walk as a metaphor for how you live. So how many of you there in 4, 1 have the to live? Okay, so that's fine. That's not, I'm not saying anything negative about your translation. That's a fine way to express it. But that's the first time he's the, he said, therefore, walk. And here, it, it's going to be, therefore, walk in unity. So let's read it there, starting, let's keep going there in one, To walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the, of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the first call is to walk in unity. Based on 
the fact that God tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, the fact that God has made the two into one, how should we live in light of that? How should we walk? We should walk in unity with our brothers and sisters. Nothing should divide us. If ethnicity doesn't divide us, if Jew-Gentile doesn't divide, then nothing else should. And we all know how difficult relationships can be among people of different ethnicities. It, it, it's just part of the human condition. We tend to look at people who might look different or speak with a different accent or have different cultural uh, practices. We tend to look at them and see them as the other. We tend to see people who look more like us and talk more like us as part of our group. And that can cause division and, and you know, just difficult relationships. But in the church, there should be unity. And I said this on Sunday, our primary identity is not my citizenship, it's not my ethnicity, my primary identity marker is that I am a child of God, adopted into God's family like everybody else who's part of God's family. And uh, I, my hope is that we see our relationships within the body as so important that we would choose a brother or sister who might disagree with us politically who might vote differently than we vote politically. We would choose them any day over a non-believer who votes the same way I do. If, if you find you know, more enjoyment being around a non-believer who holds your political view than you do a fellow believer who might disagree with you politically, then we're, we, we're, we're misunderstanding our primary identity and who our brothers and sisters are. So I'm not surprised that coming off of 2, 11 through 22, where he talked about how he made the two into one and he removed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, I'm not surprised that his first call is to walk in unity. We'll come back and talk about that one a little more in a moment. Now look at 417. Therefore, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So I guess if I were looking for song titles to name, I'd say, don't walk like a Gentile. You know, you know the song, Walk Like an Egyptian? I'm trying to work with that, but I guess this one's don't walk like that. And it's not just an Egyptian. Don't walk like you did when you were Gentiles without Jesus. So your life now should reflect this new life in Christ. So this section would be walk in your new identity. Don't walk like the person you were before Christ. And, and that's going to dominate 4, 17 through 32. So if you're following along, that's going to get us to the end of chapter 4. And if you're looking at the outline... Exhortation to walk in unity, 4, 1 through 16. If you go down to Roman numeral 2 under that, exhortation to walk in the new identity, 4, 17 through 32. That brings us to chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, Follow God's example, therefore, 
as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Therefore, walk in the way of love. So this is his third exhortation. How should you walk? How should you live in light of everything he's talked about in chapters 2 and 3? How should we walk? We should walk in love. And he's going to define what that, what that love is. How, what, what's the nature of the love we should walk in? What kind of love should we have for our brothers and sisters? He's, he's, going, to, he's going to help us understand that a little bit. And that's, that's a short section. That's 5, 1 through 5. Then look at verse 6. So this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. And if you're following along on your outline, this is going to be at the bottom of the page, Roman numeral 4, exhortation to walk in the light. So he says, beginning at verse 6, and this is a little long buildup to the therefore walk, but you'll see it. So verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, there's your therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So, so that's your fourth, therefore, walk. So the first one uh, was walk in unity. The second one was walk in your new identity. The third one was walk in love. And now it's walk in light. There's one more. So if you turn your notes over to the top of the back of the last page, the exhortation to walk in wisdom. So look at uh, chapter 5, verse 15. He says, be, be very careful, therefore, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So, uh, walk in wisdom. And this is actually a lengthy section. It's going to go from 5.15 all the way to 6.9. So, there's the five exhortations. Therefore, walk this way. So, now let's go back to 4.1 through 16 to the first of these. So, if you're on your outline, I'm going back to exhortation, walk this way. Roman numeral 1, exhortation to walk in unity. Let's hear how Paul describes how we ought to walk in unity. So, I already read uh, a portion of this, but he starts by, here are the virtues that will allow you to be unified with your brothers and sisters. If we will display these virtues in our spiritual lives, it will promote unity in the body. So he says, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. Be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now look at those virtues. You, you want to you ask, you know, what does a Christian li look like? You know, what are, what are the traits that, that you should be able to identify in the life of a, of a follower of Jesus? How about humility and gentleness? Now, here's where, here's where you start to see that Christianity turns the world upside down. The world lives in a certain way. I'm talking about a, a world that 
is set against God and God's purposes, a world that has fallen and desperately in need of Jesus. Now, we live in that world, but we're not supposed to be of that world. Now, you think about what virtues are promoted out there. Not in the Christian community, I'm talking about in the fallen world. And I can tell you now, humility and gentleness are not one and two on the virtue list promoted in the world. In fact, arrogance and boastfulness can, can be honored. We, for some reason, there's something in fallen humanity that likes it. We're attracted to it. Not in the Christian community. Not in the people of God. And, and I, can, I can guarantee you where there is arrogance and where there is an inability to be gentle with one another, to be understanding, to be willing to to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to try to understand their point of view, understanding their, 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 their circumstances or their situation. If you can't do that, then you're going to be divisive. Now, that's true if it's in the Lions Club or the Kiwanis or in the church or on a sports team. These are the virtues that promote unity, humility, gentleness and jesus taught the same i mean paul's following in jesus lead you the sermon on the mounts next year we'll get to that but blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the meek um these are the virtues uh, that that will allow us to be all it is that god wants us to be and and he, then he mentions patience the ability to be patient with one another. Bearing with one another in love. Your translation may say long-suffering. It, it means to, to put up with someone. And, and to do it in the spirit of love. Because you're my brother and my sister. These are the virtues that promote the unity that he's calling us to walk in. And then he just says, may it make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, that's the, those are the virtues. And, and I would just really urge you tonight to kind of ask yourself, do, do those virtues fit? Do you think if the people you know best were asked, are you humble? Are you gentle? Are you patient? Are you the kind of person that's willing to bear with someone, even though they might irritate you, or, but you, you bear with them in love? Does, does that typify us? And um, these are tricky, because like let's say you're sitting there thinking, you know what, I, I need to be more humble. I can be arrogant. Well, how do you fix that? You know, do you start working on humility? Like, well, I'm going to be more humble. Really? Can you, can you achieve humility by trying to be humble? How would you ever know if you had achieved it? Because once you thought, wow, I'm humble now. You're obviously not. It's just a tricky virtue. So, so how do you, you know, I've said examine yourself. That's why I said ask somebody else. Because... Humble people probably don't think of themselves as humble. 
because it, it, it's just something that just comes naturally out of your relationship with Jesus. It's, it's a maturity issue. And so uh, I'm, I'm still growing in that. And uh, I, I, I would guess there's others here like, like me who are still growing in that. But I bet you you can look around this place right now and can identify some people who say, man, that's, that's a humble person right there. And I bet if you said to them, I thought of you tonight, if you met them after church and said, I thought of you as, as somebody that's humble, they'd probably say, really? I'm not sure they'd recognize themselves as humble. Not like Ben Franklin, you know. Ben Franklin, his, his idea of, uh, of virtue, of character, was like working on all the virtues. And so he listed them, and he'd work on them for a period of time. He thought you could, you know, if I really focus on humility for a while, I can conquer that one and then go on to the next one. And it just doesn't really work like that. It's something that happens more organically in your relationship with Jesus. As he matures us, as we become more the person he's made us to be, we, more, we come more to understand how much God has forgiven us, how insignificant we really are, and yet Jesus died for me. When, when someone else irritates you or maybe offends you and, 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 and you, know, you sort of get that spirit of rising up in you and you're, you realize how, how gentle and how patient God can be with us, and, and, and maybe that inspires you to be that way towards others. Now, the theological basis for unity starts in verse 4, where he gives seven of these. And you're going to recognize them. There is one body, he says. Now, what do you think he's referring to when he says there's one body? That's church. The church is the body of Christ. When he says there's one body, he's talking about there is one church. Now, he's not aware of denominations. They've not, at this point, Christianity is a, is a brand new movement spreading across the Roman world. They've not divided yet up into denominations. So, so he could say there's one church. We might have different denom denominations. There's still one universal church, and it's made up of all the true followers of Jesus, no matter what denomination they might be part of, or if they're, maybe they're not tied to any particular denomination. It could be somebody who's believed and never had access to a body like this to be part of. But the, there is one true people of God, and it encompasses all those who've ever lived, past, present, and I guess you could say future, uh, wherever they might be whenever they might have lived in that sense there is one body and then one spirit and i would i hope you, well i don't i, I want to be careful here but I, I think it should be capitalized i think he's referring to one holy spirit and if your translation capitalizes spirit there then they think he's talking they've interpreted that as holy spirit if they lowercase s then they think it's just one, I don't know what the Spirit would be, but I guess it's not the Holy Spirit then, because most translations would capitalize Holy Spirit. But there's one Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 12, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse, no, yeah, I was right the first time. Chapter 1, verse 18, had the wrong, 118. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you might know the hope 
to which he has called you. The hope of his calling. That was Sunday morning sermon. And I mentioned then that hope is always forward looking. And, and so he's already referred to this hope that we have in Christ. The hope of his calling. Uh, and then in two, chapter 2, verse 12, when he's talking about Gentiles who were separated from Israel and without God, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and, and estranged from the covenants of promise without hope. So those who are without Christ, those who are not part of the one body, are without hope. Now, they might be optimistic, thinking things will get better. You know, we have optimism a lot of times on no, and no basis for it. Um, I hope it's a beautiful day tomorrow. Now, the things working against me is that I'm in Oklahoma and it's March. So how much hope can I have that tomorrow will be a beautiful day? I, I haven't, I've not seen a forecast. It could be 78 or 80 degrees, or it could drop down into the 50s tomorrow. It could, the wind could be blowing 35 miles an hour, or it could snow. So, oh, I hope it's pretty tomorrow. That's a different sentiment there than the kind of hope that he's talking about here. There is one hope. There's one hope of the future. There is one hope at the present, and, and that hope is in Jesus. And that hope is not rooted in some sort of unfounded optimism. It's rooted in the promises of God. And it's something that should be more sure. So we should be unified because there's one body, one spirit, one hope with which you were called. One Lord. And this 23 times he uses some, this word Lord. Uh, with reference to Jesus, we should be able to find unity in the fact that we all bow our knee to one sovereign Lord. There is one faith. Now, faith can either refer to trust, like you can say, my faith is in Jesus, right? If you use it that way, you're, you're referring to it as trust. Like, like I have faith in this bench, that means I trust it to hold me up, so I'm willing to sit right down on it. Wouldn't that have been a moment to remember if it had collapsed with me right there? Um, so, so faith can be trust, but faith can also refer to what you believe. Like Paul can use that language of the faith that was handed down to me, I'm passing on to you. The New Testament has that idea of a body of doctrine. And I think in this instance, when he says there's one faith, he's talking about there is one body of doctrine. And I'm, I'm talking about essential core doctrine that unifies us. There's a core of belief that if you don't hold that belief, you're not Christian. And we could debate what's in that core, what comprises that, like, that, that core layer of belief surely we would agree that what you think about sabbath observance you know is not a core belief in order to be christian that is 
whether you can mow your grass or not on the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath would be Saturday, right? Biblically, the Sabbath was Saturday. Christian worship moved to Sunday because of the resurrection. So, see, we're already debating, well, what is the Sabbath? Now, there, I've run into a few people over the years who seem to make, want to make every doctrine core. If you disagree with them about anything, then they're not going to want to get along with you. But not many. But when I'm talking core, I'm talking about like the belief that human beings are fallen and, and hopeless without God in the world. Sinners. And that the only solution to that problem is Jesus' death and resurrection. So, so I'm talking about core doctrines here. Believe in, belief in Jesus, fully God, fully man, yet one person, two natures, one person. The belief in God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Man, these are core doctrines. There is a core of belief that defines the true people of God. And so that ought to help unify us. And the, the ability to acknowledge that we don't have to agree on everything in order to be one. That we can agree to disagree on certain things. But one of those things is not whether or not God is Trinity. That, that would not be something that we could agree to disagree on. You can't reject the Trinity and be Christian. What God do you believe in? You cannot reject that Jesus is fully God, fully man, one person. You can't reject that and be Christian. For 2,000 years, the church has said that's true belief about Jesus. Fully God, fully man. For 2,000 years, the church has said this is the true doctrine of God, that God is three in one. Now, you don't have to be able to explain it all fully, but you can't reject it. There's one faith, one baptism, and I think he's talking about there, there is one water baptism whereby we identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. That's six. The seventh one is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And he, so he ends with one God who is over all, through all, and in all. And uh, that's, that's the most basic foundational theological statement in Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's where he brings it to a conclusion. There is one God, the Father, of all. And then th this last line, who is over all and through all and in all. You've got to watch Paul's prepositional phrases. He likes them, and they're often very meaningful. So this one God is over all. That's a way to refer to God's sovereignty. God's lordship of all. So he's over all. All. Everything, everyone, no matter what planet we're talking about. We're not just talking about like Moore or Oklahoma 
or the United States or the planet Earth or the Milky Way. We're talking about whatever's out there. God made it and is Lord over it. Now, wouldn't a God like that seem rather intimidating? I mean, if, if that God is sitting at a table where you go to eat, are you going to run up to him and say, can I take a picture with you? I don't know about you, but if that God were sitting at a table somewhere and I knew that's who it was, I don't know if I'd have the courage to even walk over there. If that's all I knew about God, that he was overall. We're like that like with celebrities and stuff. It's like, ah, should I go over there or not? Should I speak to them or not? Should I ask for an autograph if you're a kid? I hope if you're a kid. Um, I, I, I one of the funniest things that's ever happened to me was I was at Penny Hill Sub, which was a little sub shop in Norman. Any of you ever go to Penny Hill Sub? I think... I think Kenny Mossman was the person who first told me I should, I should eat there. Um, but I was there one Saturday, went there. I had to go to Norman for something else, and my son Luke, who was about six or seven at the time, went with me. So we're sitting there at Penny Hill Sub at our table eating, and I look up, and you're not going to believe who was sitting at a table there. Not God. Barry Switzer. Barry Switzer was sitting at a table at Penny Hill Sub with his, what I assume was his daughter and grandchildren. And, you know, I grew up, now I didn't grow up an OU fan. I've sort of grafted in a little bit. But, but still, Barry Switzer, now he was the Dallas Cowboy coach when I was, when I was in seminary in Fort Worth. So it's, it's Barry Switzer. Now I, would, I wouldn't call him the king, but it's Barry Switzer. And I will say, he didn't look like the Barry Switzer that I remembered from television um, on the sidelines. Um, he, he had on long shorts, and he had on like white stockings. You know, the kind that you'd put on for circulation. So he obviously wasn't worried about it, what anybody was thinking about him. But it was Barry Switzer. So I tell Luke, we're sitting there at the table. I don't even know if our food had come yet. We just sat down. I said, Luke, I told him who that was, and he didn't know who it was, and he didn't really care. But I said, I'll tell you what's going to be interesting. Let's see if anybody comes over to the table to, to get a picture or an autograph. Let's just check it out. So we're watching, and people are being very, um, I guess, respectful. Nobody's coming over there, and I'm really surprised about it. But I catch my eye. A, a, a gentleman, an older gentleman, who stands up. He's been looking over in that direction. I was watching him. I thought, you know, probably a lifelong OU fan. He's at least going to go over there and, like, shake his hand or something. This man gets up and starts walking towards Switzer's table. And I elbow Luke. Like, I think this guy's going to go over to his table. He walks right by Switzer to our table and says, are you Dr. Bobby Kelly? <laughs> it was like the greatest moment of my life with, with Luke sitting there, and he's probably just eating his sandwich. But in my mind, it's like, and after I said, Luke, did you see that? 
That guy didn't even acknowledge Barry Switzer. He came right to me. And, and he went, I think he went to Bethel Baptist Church where I'd been doing some stuff. It could have even been this church. I don't remember where he, where he was from exactly. But he knew me from church, and, and he just wanted to say hello. So I told that story at Emmanuel Baptist Church uh, in February. And la- a week before, let me see, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before, it was spring break Sunday, and I went to Taco Casa uh, with my wife and both kids and my older son's girlfriend. So we're sitting at the table there, and this guy comes over to me, taps me on the shoulder, and he said, can I take a picture with you? <laughs> and then he said, and I said, uh, okay. <laughs> and he said, and he did, but he said, I, was, I heard your story. And, uh, you know, my kid, he just did it so I'd look good in front of my family there. But, uh, so feel free to come over for pictures if you see me out. But I'm not God. You're all aware of that. And I'm not Barry Switzer either. And, and we tend to be almost like people are they're too, up, too above us to maybe go over and talk or whatever. But think about how other, the God of all should seem to us but that's not all he says about him he says one god the father who is over all and through all and for paul that's shorthand for and through him all things come into being because he says that like in colossians he uses that phrase through all with reference to god it just means all things came into being through him So it's another statement about God's greatness, God's sovereignty, God's otherness. Man, you you don't run over to that person's table for an autograph. You bow down. You feel unworthy. You can't even, you you probably don't even feel like you can look in that, that God's direction. But look at the last one, and in all. I mean, one of Paul's favorite phrases is, in Christ, Christ in you. He can use the language, we are in God. And John likes this language, that God is in us. So this God, who is so grand and so great and so overall, can stoop down to us so that you can say, and he is in all, in everyone, I mean, of his people. And it's that it's that perfect balance between God's otherness, God's transcendence, and God's nearness to us. And, uh, you know, what would really be the show is if Barry Switzer had come over to my table, <laughs> right? If, if, the, if the person that you think of as the celebrity, you know, the person who's up there, if they come over to you, and in a sense, that what, that's what God did when Jesus took upon himself human flesh. In a sense, he was coming over to our table and saying, can I sit down? So this God, it's just a wonderful statement and all that packed into this one line. Now, remember why he's doing it. Because there is this one God and we all call upon the name of this one God, that that faith in this one God and our belief in him ought to unify us over all the things that tend to divide us. So it's a strong call for unity in the church. 
Now, starting uh, at verse 7, he talks about the gifts that the ascended Christ, the gifts that Christ has given after he ascended into the heavens, the, the gifts that he has given to the church, nurture unity in the church. So that's why the turn now to gifts. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. This is why it says, and he quotes Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to men or to people. So when he ascended, he gave gifts. That's why Paul quotes that passage. So now he's going to talk about the gifts that, that Christ has given to the church. And the reason why he says, he quotes at this verse, when he ascended on high, I, I'm very confident that that's a reference to Jesus' ascension, when he goes up and, and is seated at the right hand of God. By virtue of the authority given to him as the one seated at the right hand of God, he has the authority to give gifts to the church. And the gifts that he gives to the church are for nurturing unity within the church. So he says, what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower regions? And that's not the point here. It's not clear what that's a reference to. When he ascended is the ascension. When he just throws in, well, how could he ascend unless he first descended? That's likely a reference to the incarnation, him taking upon himself human flesh. It could be a reference to Jesus' death, his descending to the grave, his going to the grave. But that's not really the point here. The point is he ascended, and in his ascension, he has the authority then to give gifts to the church. Verse 10, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill all things. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. That's four. So let's, let's hear them again. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teacher. These are the gifts that Paul points out here that the ascended Christ has given to the church in order to nurture unity in the church. Now, that's a very generic list. You know, we might have been expecting like tongues and speaking in tongues and faith and administration and healings and the kinds of gifts you find in like 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12. But no, here it's, it's very general. And it's not really gifts. It's more like gifted people that Christ has given to the church. So you think about when Paul's writing this in the first century, when he says apostles, he's talking about himself, he's an apostle, the twelve, those who are still living, that were Jesus' disciples, Timothy, Silas, there's a, there's a relatively small number of people who would have fit that heading, apostle. They were for the building up of the church. And uh, he actually uh, used that language back in chapter 2, the apostles and prophets uh, who built up the church at the, near the end of chapter 2. So apostles. At the time Paul's writing this letter, any church would have likely had 
who that he's writing to would have likely had someone who fit that bill bill apostle prophets again you could expect to find prophets in any congregation that he's writing to evangelists or church we might think of them as church planters people who are particularly gifted at sharing the gospel and then the last one and it's way he structured it is clear he puts them together in one pastor teacher and and the word he uses that's translated pastor there is shepherd so there's several terms in the new testament that refer to the position we call pastor or or pastors elder is one of those terms bishop or overseer is one of those terms and shepherd is one of those terms so it pastor slash teacher i think he saw a pastor as fulfilling that role of like shepherd and teacher in the congregation that that was a role that they would fill and god has given these gifted leaders to the church now for what purpose look at verse 12 in order to equip the saints and that then in my the way i would punctuate it that's the purpose of the gifted leaders to equip the saints stop now what do the gifted leaders equip the saints to do now we pick up the rest for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of god this is a very important point that i think needs to be made paul is not saying that he has given these gifted leaders to the church for the for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body like there are three purposes of the gifted leaders and if we had time for a lesson in greek i could tell you how i could show you why that's not what he's saying grammatically he's saying that that the ascended lord has given these gifted leaders to the church for the equipping of the saints and they, they are to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of ministry and the building up of the body. It is not the sole responsibility of your paid church staff to do the work of ministry and to build up the body. That's all of our responsibility. So how do we do that? How do we do the work of ministry? How do we build up the body? Well, these gifted leaders should train us. That is the members, the laity, we might use that term, the people of the church. They are to train us so that we can do the ministry. That's their role, to, to equip us so that we can do the work of ministry. Do you know how little ministry this church can do if the only people who do ministry are your paid staff? I mean, how many people, you just, I, I don't know how many paid staff you have. I know you got Jaron. I know you got Owen. I know you got Kennedy. I don't know who else you got. 
That's who I've seen this trip. But I'm sure there are others. So, so let's, oh, I know you got Cody. Um, so if you take what they can do, how many people are they able to minister to in the course of a week? How many people can they reasonably actually have conversation with? It's, it's a relatively small number. If that's the extent of the ministry of this church. Now, how many people do you have the opportunity to minister to in the course of a week? How many people will you come into contact with tomorrow that a member of this church staff will likely not have an opportunity to have any contact with? And they might be people who need ministry. And you are the minister. Not ordained. Not seminary degree. You don't even have to have an OBU degree. And yet, you can minister to them. And it's the, the work of your gifted leaders to equip you to do the work of ministry and for the building up of the body. Now, this is important for me for two reasons. One, because of the how that expands the ministry of the church if everybody sees themselves as a minister. So think of the, you know, exponentially how you can increase your ministry if everybody sees themselves as a minister. But the second reason is I have a lot, I train, I help train and educate a lot of ministry folk. Uh, Owen, Courtney, I left Courtney out. When I was thinking, see, that's why I didn't even, I shouldn't even have gone down the road. Just, just attribute it to me being 58. And sometimes I can't even recall one of my children's names. So if, if I can't, if I mix them up, I can forget Courtney or Cody here and there. But these are people that I, in some instances, have classes with for four years. And I grow to care very deeply about them. And then I see them go out. To a church and if that church sees them as the minister and that it's their role to do the ministry of the church you know what will happen in a fairly short order you will absolutely grind them down to nothing they will burn out i see it i see people leave the ministry and sometimes, it, I mean, it's not always for the same reason, but oftentimes I think it is because the congregation does not see them as God's gift. What did he say? The ascended Christ has given gifts to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. Do you see your staff, your gifted leaders, do you see them as God's gift to you, to this church? Do you treat them like God's gift to this church? That's, that's, that's one thinking of that. The, the other way you grind, if you don't see them as God's gift, and you see them as they're supposed to be doing all the ministry, you will just absolutely wear them slick. And they'll end up burned out and... It leads to all kinds of problems. 
So I think this is, this is important. And, um, and there, there's really not a lot of debate among people who do this kind of work that grammatically it's clear that's how Paul structured this. That, that the ascended Christ has given these gifted leaders to the church for, for equipping the saints. The saints are equipped to do the work of ministry and for the building up of the body until we all reach the full unity um, in the faith. And uh, let's just skip ahead now to 4.17. So this is the second exhortation, walk in the new identity. So this one's a little easier to cover. It's going to sound more familiar than what we were probably just talking about. Because here it's the call to, because you were Gentiles and you live like Gentiles and you live like pagans, <laughs> now you're no longer Gentiles without Christ. Now you're part of the people of God. Now live like that. It, it sounds like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So, it, so live like that. Walk like that. Don't, don't, you should, there should be a clear difference in the way you live before Christ and after Christ. So, so he's just saying, walk in this new identity. He says in verse 17, Therefore I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, empty, vain thinking, they are darkened in their understanding. You're supposed to be children of the light. It's like the light bulb has now come on. Don't walk in darkness. Separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. So there's a description of what life might look like apart from Christ. It should not be a description about what life looks like for the people of God. So the call is to put off the old, the old way of life. In verse 20, put on the new. I mean, if you're taking off, you got to put on. And we've got quite a bit of evidence from the early church that baptism involved taking off an old garment experiencing baptism and then putting on a new one symbolically they did this in the early church i think the closest thing we could do to that which we typically do is is sometimes bab baptize people in a white robe um but it, it symbolizes that you've taken off the old and and you've put on something new and now so you should live like that so this is what he says about putting on the new verse 20 that however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in jesus you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be, to be made new in the spirit, that is your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So 
It, it's put on the new, this new creation that God has made you to be. And then in verse uh, 25, he returns to talk about putting off and how we should live as the new creation. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor. So those are two, two things that we should um, put off. We should put off falsehood and we should speak truthfully. Verse 26, in, uh, in your anger, do not sin. Be angry and sin not. I think that's probably the King James. That's what's in my head. Be angry and sin not. And I've actually heard somebody say, it's okay to be angry. Just don't be angry and sin. That's not what Paul's saying. Look at, the, look at what he says after that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Well, it sounds like that if you hold that anger more than a few hours, if it goes into the night, you, you carry that thing over, then it's become a sin. So if, if you can be angry and not sin, you can't be angry very long and not sin. Anger just will not lead to good outcomes. And it, it, it's not, an angry person is not the kind of person that represents the kingdom. Do not give the devil a foothold. That's connected to the anger. Anger gives the devil. It's like, he's, it's like Satan's crouching at the door. And, and if you go around angry and speaking angry words, you're like giving him opportunity. Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but work do some, doing something useful with your own hands that we may have something to share with those in, in need. Rather than stealing, your life should be marked by honest labor so that you can help others. And then 29, do not let any rotten talk come out of your mouths. And, and here Paul uses a word that is used to describe the smell of fish, of rotten fish. So if you want to know what this verse smells like, think of rotted fish. Don't let any rotten or spoiled talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be grace for those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Man, that's a lot to take off, isn't it? And then back to what you should put on. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The third exhortation, 5, 1 through 5, walk in love. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. And Paul describes, defines love here so beautifully in just one verse. Here's how he describes it. Here's what love looks like. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now think of how he's just described the love of Christ. He gave himself up. Love is sacrificial. Love is willing to do what is best for the other willingly, even if it's not the best for me. 
That's what love does. If you love your children, aren't you willing to sacrifice in ways you might not for anybody else? Because you love your child, so you make sacrifices. You're willing to give up things for them. It's the nature of love. Hopefully you do that for your spouse. Hopefully you do that for the people you love. So it's sac- it, it, is, it is willing. He gave himself for us. Now there's the, the su- sort of the substitutionary part. That, that he's willing to take our place. You know, you hear somebody say, I'd take a bullet for them. Well, that's, that's the nature of love. Now, is that a feeling? Is it like, well, I feel like I'd take a bullet for them. Because we often think of love as something related to strong feelings. But it's more than that. I'm not going to say it doesn't involve feelings, but it's, it's, it, it can't just be feelings. It's got to be a willingness to make a commitment that you will act sacrificially, you will, you're willing to give of yourself, and you do it willingly. That's the nature of love. And then he says, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the sacrificial part of it, to be willing to sacrifice. That's, that's how you love. And it doesn't matter what your words say. If, if you don't display that, then it's not love. My, uh, my, my son has a real serious girlfriend now, been for a year. My older son, who's at OBU. He's, he's met this girl. We all love her. Man, we're crazy about her. Hoping he doesn't blow it. Hope she doesn't watch this or hear this. Uh, but, um, you know, Luke, Luke's matured a lot since he's been at OBU. And I, and I really honestly think now, three years ago, I'd have said he, he's not ready to, to say he's fallen in love with somebody. He just, he wasn't there. But he's changed a lot in the last uh, three years. And, um, and I, I, I know he, I can tell he loves her. I mean, he's willing to sacrifice, like not get things for himself to get her things. He's never been like that. I can promise you, he's not sacrificed very much in his life to get me something. He'd be more than happy to get what he wanted, even if I didn't get what I wanted. But he, he's grown. He's matured. He, he's now, I see in him, he's ready to love somebody that way. And um, that's, that's what real love looks like. Let's, let's get away from the thinking of it about these intense feelings. Man, he's always had intense feelings. But that didn't mean it was love. And, and we get all these mixed messages and false messages about what love is. We get it from like Harlequin romances and, I don't know, Hallmark movies and, and, and Valentine's cards and country music. You know, we get all these messages about love, and it's always about deep feelings. And uh, that tends to hide the truth about what love is. And so you get somebody who may have, be in an abusive relationship, and, and maybe boyfriend or husband is physically abusing her. 
Maybe she's sitting in front of you, crying to you, needing, not knowing what to do or where to go. And you say, well, you got to get out of there. And she, and, and she says, but he loves me. And I guess you can think that's love if love's just about intense feelings. But I can tell you, if you're physically abusing somebody, that's not love. That's not the nature of love as described here. But we hide the truth because we misunderstand the nature of love. And we say, well, they love me. And I'd say, that's not love. And you should get out of that relationship. If, if, if you're being abused physically. And, and even verbal abuse can reach that level. And the country music, is a, that's, that's the last place you need to get your... Uh, well, I guess any other, rock and roll would be even worse, I guess. But, uh, I mean, you just listen to your favorite country music artist. And I guarantee you they're talking about love lost. And they're talking about love as something that will drive you to madness. Drive you to drinking. That's what love is. That's the nature of love. There's a country music singer from just up the road where I grew up. I'm not going to tell you his name. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, though. He's on the radio all the time, but I don't want to besmirch anybody's name here. And he's got a song, and the line is, Tequila made me crazy, cold beer wouldn't do, so I whiskeyed my way over you. And, and that's it in a nutshell. That's, that's the love that all of the messages are sent to us. And God says, this is love. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the nature of genuine love. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Here's false notions of love. He just talked about what real love is, so now he's going to say here are false notions of love. Or any kind of impurity or greed because of these, impro uh, these are improper for God's saints. Nor should there be a vulgar speech, foolish talk coming out, uh, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And then the fourth of the exhortations, here in, starts in 15.6, uh, uh, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient therefore do not be partners with them for you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light and uh, that sounds a lot like 1 John which starts God is light and if anyone claims to walk in him and yet walks in darkness you lie and don't do the truth so if God is light and we are in him, then we should walk in the light. And we should know that our dirty deeds, the deeds done in the darkness, will eventually come to light. Those words spoken in inner rooms will be shouted from the housetops. Those awful deeds done in darkness will eventually come to light. If not in this world, in the one to come. So live as children of light.
And then the fifth one, verse 15, walk in wisdom. He starts out by saying, uh, giving you an example of godly wisdom and how we should walk. Be very careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time. Uh, redeem is a word that means to buy back or to purchase. Buy back the time. If time, time is a limited quantity. And if you don't use it for God's purposes, it'll be used for evil. So he uses the image of buying back the time. Use it appropriately. Use it for God's purposes. If you don't use it for good, it'll be used for evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And then the call is to be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs, and spiritual songs. It's like uh, worship. He's describing worship here. So walking in the Spirit is characterized by worship, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. What a beautiful expression of worship. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two marks of a Spirit-filled person. A desire to worship and, gra and gratitude. A person who is grateful. A person who is thankful to God. Or just a great a person of gratitude generally. Someone who is grateful to others and to God. Thanksgiving. A thankful person. Not a person who seems entitled. Not a person that if you do something nice for them, they act like, well, you should have done that for me. A person who genuinely is a grateful kind of person. That's a good test of someone's spirituality. A lack of gratitude indi in indicates a lack of spiritual vitality. So that's, those are marks of being filled with the Spirit. And then, and man, we're out of time, and I, I hate it so much. Wives, submit to your husbands. You know, part of being a good teacher is knowing right where to get up to the time to go. But I know that's not a very popular sentiment of Paul. Paul takes a lot of abuse for saying things like, wives, submit to your husbands. And part of the problem is, and I know I've said this here before because I say this everywhere that I get an opportunity to say it, it's because we have a false understanding of submission. We think of it as something that is degrading, something that robs you of your human dignity. That's how, that's how the world thinks about submission. In Scripture, submission is something that the Son does to the Father. Jesus submits to the Father. Does Jesus give up his dignity? Submission is not a dirty word. It does involve trust. It does involve the willingness to, to cede some control. But it's not a dirty word. And when you balance, and I'm obviously I've got to skip a little bit, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You have this mutual responsibility within marriage. The wife to submit, the husband to love as Christ loved the church. Now you can't ask a wife to be submissive to a husband who does not love her like that. Well, you can ask her, but it's going to be a terrible ordeal. 
To ask a wife to submit to a husband who does not love her like Christ loves the church would be like asking you to swim without water. This is a mutual responsibility. And when you get the two becoming one, exercising their responsibility before the Lord, you know, like, like with the Jew and Gentile, he tore down the wall and he made the two into one. Well, he also says he does that with a husband and a wife. The two become one. It, this is a great mystery, Paul says. And it pictures Christ and the church. With the wife being like the church and the husband being like Christ. It's a picture of that. So here's the, here's the opportunity married couples have. Now I know God calls some people to singleness, to celibacy. And if God calls you to that, go live that. And they're, I mean, we some pretty good examples of people who live that way. You know, Jesus and Paul be two pretty good ones. But should God call you to marriage... Here's the opportunity you have to show forth to everyone that knows you and sees you the glory of, of the relationship of Christ and the church. You have the opportunity to mirror that to others. That's the glory of marriage. It mirrors the relationship of Christ and the church. And then verse 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's one I've quoted around the house a lot over the last 22 years. Still quoted every once in a while, even though they're 22 and 17 now. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Verse 4 of chapter 6, fathers, do not provoke resentment in your children that's how i'd translate that exasperate um, i would translate it do, do not provoke resentment instead bring them up in the training and and instruction of the lord if my kids were smart they would have quoted that one back to me well they are smart but if they'd known this verse they would have quoted this one right back to me when i said children obey your parents but that'd probably break the spirit of 6-1, so they really shouldn't do that. But, I mean, I should know that, though. And, and I'll just say without hesitation that it is not possible for you to do what God is calling fathers to do, that is bring them up in the training or nurture and admonition of the Lord. You cannot do that unless you are present in their lives and involved in their lives. And that's why you have to guard your time. And I understand having to work, and I understand having to work long hours often for your family, but you cannot let work keep you from being present in your children's lives. And if it, you know, and this is, I can't overgeneralize because some of you, I can imagine you being in a situation where I, I've got more freedom. If I say to my dean, my son's in, in, a, in an event, or he's receiving an award, or he's doing something, so I'm going to miss something to go do that. They would have to tell me, if you do, you'll be fired. Before I would consider not doing it. And then I'd be looking for a new job. 
Now, I know maybe you can't be that, but I'm talking about just being the kind of parent where when your children think about you, they'll say someday, he or she and mother, they were there. They didn't always do a good job. They, they messed up here and there. They didn't always do it exactly like I think they might should have, but they were present. That's the only way you can do what he's calling fathers to do here. And then slaves and masters, I'm just going to assume here tonight that none of you are slaves and none of you have slaves. So I'm skipping that. Because i got to skip something. And that brings us to, to what looks like the final exhortation, but that, we've already seen the five. The last one was walking wisdom. When we get to putting on the full armor of God, he doesn't use the therefore walk language like he did in all the, the five other sections. So I think this is more of a general one, and, and here's how I think it works. If you're going to walk like he's just called us to walk, everything we've done tonight starting at 4-1, walk in unity, walk in the new creation, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. If you're going to walk like that, you better know there are spiritual forces in the world set against you that want to trip you up, that want to keep you from walking like that. They're principalities and powers of the air. They're evil. They're demonic. If you're going to walk like that, you're going to need the full armor of God to do it. And so, he says at, 16, at chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's strategies. This is the only way you're going to be able to walk like He's calling us to walk. If you put on, verse 14, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The shield of faith, shield being like the most important part of the armor. It was a, all these are so far defensive armor. They're all about protection. Um, the breastplate, the belt, uh, the, the feet covered, and the shield. I know Captain America uses his shield offensively, but that, they didn't use theirs that, that way. It was a protect, to protect it primarily. And then verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And, and that's the one offensive weapon in the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you're going to walk like he's called us to walk, then you're going to have to put on the full armor of God or these spiritual forces are going to eat you alive. And then final greetings, verse 21. Finally, the body's over. Here's the conclusion. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord. So, Tychicus is the person carrying this letter to the church at Ephesus. And Paul's just pointing him out. Dear brother, faithful servant of the Lord, he will tell you everything so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he might encourage you. So this is Paul's co-worker. Who better to deliver his letter? 
He will read the letter to them. He knows Paul. It seems he's present when Paul's writing the letter. So if they have questions about the letter, who better to ask? Paul can't travel to every church where he's writing letters, but the letter carrier knows Paul. He'll be able to answer questions. And if they have questions about how Paul's doing, Tychicus can tell him. He's the perfect letter carrier. He doesn't just drop the letter off and scram. He's delivering the letter and reading it to them. Verse 23, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And uh, there's Ephesians in, uh, I don't know, what do we have? Two hours, not two full hours on Sunday morning. You know, an hour and then like 40 minutes. And then uh, an hour and a half to, to hour 45 on Sunday night because we ate in between there. And then like an hour and a half tonight. Um, there's value in speeding through. Now, you read it on your own. You spend time meditating, contemplating, absorbing, and God can change your life. The Spirit will use His Word to do it. So let me ask a blessing upon you, and uh, we will be dismissed for the evening. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Amen.